The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, I started uh, doing a survey of Malachi, and I thought that in the course of the survey, I'd be able to finish it in four sermons. But it's still a survey. It's just going to be nine sermons. But in order for us... But in order for us to get through um, in a timely fashion, which means next Lord's Day, so that we can get back to Hebrews, we're going to spend all day in Malachi. So today, the last day of 2006, is going to be a Malachi fest. And so, uh, take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at the, at the beginning of the chapter, even though our text is verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, or better, alkali. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift or better expert witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. How do you think God is changing you? If you are a Christian, then God is changing you. And we need to understand the process, at least in part. I mean, let's face it, once the trumpet of the Lord sounds and we're forever with the Lord, we will look back over our lives and we'll realize that God has changed us in ways that we never even knew, that we never even recognized But it is important for us to understand, at least in part, the process of how God changes us. The text in Malachi 3 actually tells us that he changes us by being to us the refiner's fire. What we see as we read the scriptures is we find that Jesus Christ is absolutely committed to the purity of his people. He is dedicated to our progress and holiness. He is absolutely committed to, as it were, removing the dross from our lives in a process. And so in Malachi chapter 3, the Lord Jesus is likened to the refiner's fire 
and the launderer's alkali. And both fire, as we saw last, last week, both fire and soap. Don't think of soap in the sense of ivory or tide. Think of it in terms of, of lye or alkali. Is a, both are separating agents. The fire separates the dross from that which is valuable, and the alkali separates the filth and the grime from that which needs to be clean, and that is the cloth or the clothing. We find out that he sits in authority over his people as a smelter and as a purifier. And then we get to the New Testament and we find this, Titus 2.14, who, speaking of Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus is committed to purifying us as his people. Salvation should never ever be seen in minimalistic terms of just saving us from the penalty of our sin. Salvation should always be seen in his biggest terms of not only saving us from the penalty of sin, but also progressively saving us from the power of sin. Jesus not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but he saves us out from our sins. In other words, he is committed to purifying for himself a people for his own possession. Now, in the text that we're looking at this morning, verses 5 and 6, we go from the, the coming of Messiah to then this statement in verse 5, which is, which is um, a, a little daunting. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. He, we go from the picture of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap to then this next statement, then I will draw near to you for judgment. In other words, we go from a picture of God or Christ as the refiner's fire to then being a consuming fire in judgment, which leads us to the point that not everybody is refined. It is not as if the refining process is simply straight across the board. The refining process is for believers only, The consuming process is for those who will not bow the knee to the Lord God. And so there's a separation, not just in the lives of God's people, separation from sin and impurity, but there's also a separation, in this case, in the community or the nation abroad. And the separation is unto judgment. Now, Malachi is going to talk about that very same judgment in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, that is to be consumed, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so there's the consuming fire of God's judgment. Now notice what the text goes on to say. God says in verse 5, I will be a swift witness. Now, the, um, the word swift has the idea of I will be a ready witness or perhaps even better, I will be an expert witness. And so the picture that's being portrayed for us is that the day of judgment is going to be the day in court. 
It is going to be the day in which Yahweh is not only the judge and he's not only the prosecutor, but he is also the one who is going to sit as the witness against the people. We need to remember that in the, in the scope of redemptive history, covenants always had witnesses. And so the idea was, is when the covenant was broken and the charges were brought against the covenant breaker, the witnesses were brought in. In fact, when God makes his covenant with Israel, he himself is not only the witness, but he actually calls the stars in the sky and the mountains and the seas to be witness. In other words, all of creation is to be a witness to Israel's covenant breaking. And so here, Yahweh is the witness to their law breaking and their covenant faithlessness. And God is the expert witness. Why is he the expert witness? Because he sees all and he knows all. His testimony, in other words, is absolutely infallible. And so as Yahweh takes the witness stand to testify against his people, there can be no cross-examination of this witness that will find a weakness in his testimony or inconsistencies in his testimony because he is the expert witness. He is the infallible God who has infallible knowledge, who knows everything, including the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's one of the things that should make the concept of judgment day terrifying to people who are outside of Christ. Is that we're talking about a God who knows everything. A God who sees everything. And not just sees the deeds that we do in unrighteousness, but knows the very thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And so the warning to the nation is, don't be deceived into thinking that it's safe to defy God and to defile his covenant and to trample his law because he sees, he knows, and he will be the expert witness. Now, as the expert witness, he then says, in essence, he has more than enough evidence to convict the evildoers. Now, there are seven sins that are listed but these are not, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not as if these were the only sins God's people or the nation were guilty of. But what these seven sins are is they are evidentiary of covenant breaking in general. All right? And we're just going to go through these relatively quickly. First of all, there is the sin of the sorcerers. In the Old Testament, sorcery was any kind of divination oftentimes used to tell the future, and which would include, by the way, horoscopes. And God absolutely forbid the use of sorcery or divination in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and in fact called for capital punishment to those who would practice divination or sorcery. And the reason was is because it ends up diverting people's faith and confidence in God. And so when a person, um, whether it is, to use our uh, 
uh, a contemporary uh, uh, example. When a person goes and sits down and, and, and consults a Ouija board, or when a person opens up the newspaper to read their horoscope, they are not trusting in the Lord with all of their heart and not leaning on their own understanding. They are actually looking to something to give them confidence or to give them direction or to give them insight into the future. And that is God's place and God's place alone. God calls his people to always rely upon them. All of our todays and tomorrows and the rest of our lives are in the hands of God and therefore we're to trust God. And so sorcery or divination was a defiance of faith or trust in God. Then he mentions adulterers, breaking the seventh commandment, also a capital crime. Uh, This could be an allusion to the illegitimate and uh, divorces and remarriages mentioned in chapter 2. But he mentions adulterers, and then he mentions false swearers. That is those who swear falsely, who take oaths. Um, People who say, basically break two commandments, break the third and the ninth, taking God's name in vain and lying in the process. I swear to God, or as Yahweh lives, I promise. And God, of course, takes that very seriously. He does not look at false oaths or false swearing lightly. He says those who who take his name in vain will not go unpunished. And then we have the fourth sin, and that is the oppressors of wage earners. And the idea here is that these were people who were cheating the hired workers. These were people who would either be paying late or withholding wages altogether, which is forbidden in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 13. As God established civil law in Israel, he demanded that people be paid an honest day's wage for an honest day's work and that you were not to withhold uh, uh, payment to those who have worked for you because it was unjust, dishonest, and lacked integrity and would be the undermining of the social fabric in Israel. Also, he then brings forth the oppressors of the widow and the orphan. Widows and orphans, of course, is stereotypical language for the needy. The very ones who were to be protected and cared for here are being oppressed. And if there's anything that you see as you read the Pentateuch and then later the prophets, is you realize that God has a compassionate heart for the widows and the orphans, for those who are in need, for those who actually cannot take care of themselves. They don't have the means, they don't have the sustenance, they don't have the ability, and God repeatedly commanded his people to show compassion towards them and to protect them and to provide for them. And yet, because they're the weakest of society, they're also the easiest prey for the greedy. And so there are those who were oppressing the wage earner, those who were oppressing the widow and the orphan, and then also those who were dealing unjustly with foreigners or aliens. Contemporary language, they were mistreating the emigrants. One of the things that you see in the Pentateuch, especially the book of Exodus, is God continually draws a parallel. Because you were strangers and foreigners in a foreign land, you are to not mistreat the stranger and foreigner among you. 
Now, without getting into a, a, a prolonged discussion on immigration, those who were foreigners from other nations that came to Israel were expected to assimilate themselves as Israelites. Okay? They didn't fly Canaanite flags in their front yard. Okay? They became Israelites. But God says, you do not mistreat them. Why? Because you know what it's like to be a foreigner. You know what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. The way in which these, uh, the, the evidence is summed up is they don't fear Yahweh. Now, now to fear God is not, not the idea of cowering before God, but to fear God is tied into love and obedience and worship of God. To fear God is to have the recognition of God's holiness, His majesty, and to have a heart that goes out in a sense of fear because you realize you're not holy, you're not majestic, God is big, we're small. There is always that sense in the fear of God. But then there's also the sense that that fear manifests itself in love and obedience and worship. And in fact, those four words, fear, love, obedience, and worship, are all tied together in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, where God's people are commanded to fear Him, to walk in His ways, to love Him, and to worship Him alone. And so, of course, even in the book of Malachi, does not God say, a son is to obey his father and a master or a servant is to fear his master. If I am a father, where is my love? And if I am a master, where is my fear? And so that very concept, the, the, the fear of God had been lost during Malachi's day. The people were not living in the reality of God's presence, nor the reality of God's holiness. And they were living as practical atheists. To live outside of the fear of God is to live as if God either does not exist or is not important. And that's what they were doing. Now, on the basis of verse 5, here's a question. If some are refined and some are consumed, how can we be sure that we experience the refining fire of purity and not the consuming fire of judgment? That's the question. Verse 6, notice what God says. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. And so right after a verse that talks about God coming in judgment, God testifying as the expert witness, then listing out these evidences of sin in the life of the nation, then God turns around and makes one of the most fantastic statements of comfort and consolation you could ever imagine. And yet that is, that's the character of Scripture. Oftentimes, some of the sweetest, most blessed promises of God are right in the midst of some of the severest, hardest passages. And so here, God says, you're refined and not consumed, basically because of my un." changing love. Notice, because Yahweh does not change. And so, to answer the question, what keeps us from being, what ultimately keeps us from being refined, or keeps us from being consumed and just refined, the ultimate answer to that is God's unchanging love. That's the ultimate answer. 
Um, there, there's nothing that's intrinsic in us that says, what keeps me in this category and not that category is that I'm so good or I'm so nice or I'm so filled with faith. What keeps me from being in the consumed category and kept in the refined category is the fact that God does not change. Now, this is, this is an amazing thing. He says, I, Yahweh, God's special covenant name, I, Yahweh, do not change. We saw a couple, few weeks ago in Sunday school, very briefly, as we studied the confession, God's immutability. God does not change. And we saw that that means two things. One, God does not change in his essence. He does not change in his person, his characteristics, his attributes, all that makes up what he is does not change. He is eternally the same, all right? The other part of immutability is that God is unchanging in his decree. God is unchanging in his plan. He's unchanging in his purpose. It's not as if, don't read your Bible as if uh, he started out uh, with the Old Testament and tried this for a while and that didn't work, so he flooded them, and then tried this for a while and then that didn't work, and so he sent Jesus. Don't think of successive plans that somehow fail as if God is changing his mind all of the time. What you see in the Holy Scriptures, what you see in history, what you see is the outworking of divine providence of an unchanging plan by an unchanging God. So the focus here is on God's immutability in terms of his covenant-keeping faithfulness. Remember that, that, that covenant always has two parts to it. There are always two parties involved in covenant, and covenant always has stipulations or terms. And what God is telling his people is, You need to understand that I don't change. Now, what that means is that the terms don't change. The terms don't change in what I've required of you, but also you need to understand that the terms don't change in terms of what I've committed to you. Everything that God has committed to be to us is unchanging. He does not change. And so, here the sovereign love and election of God that we saw in chapter 1 and verse 2 is maintained because of divine immutability. God's love for us, God's covenant faithfulness to us, God's electing love to us does not change because of God. If it changed every time we changed, we would have no sense of stability, no sense of security, no sense of anything other than being in absolute flux. But God says, I don't change. And everything I've promised to be to you, I will be to you. Even though that which you're supposed to be to me, you're not. You're not, you're, you're, you're unbelieving often, you're disobedient often, you, you, you don't live up to your end of the bargain, but here's the reality, because I don't change, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. 
That's good news. That's good news because have you ever deserved to be consumed? <laughs> maybe, maybe just yesterday, maybe just the day before. And the fact is God says, here's the reason why you're not consumed. Here's the reason why I don't just drag you into court, make the case before your eyes, and then just like Saddam Friday night, just take you to the gallows, put the noose around your neck and pull the lever, and that's it, and that's what you deserve. God says, the reason I don't do that is not because you don't deserve it, but because I'm faithful and that faithfulness to you never changes. And the reason I love you when you're disobedient and when you're obedient is because I don't change. And the reason why you are kept is because I don't change. And so Christ is our refiner's fire and not a consuming forest fire. For those who are in Christ, he is the refiner's fire To those who will face judgment someday, he will be the consuming forest fire. It really is the covenant mercy of God that says, I will refine them and not consume them. And it's the unchanging love of God that says, I will refine them and not consume them. Now, let's let's put this in perspective. God's unchanging love is what guarantees his commitment to refining and purifying his people. Just as his covenant commitment to us in Christ does not change, and therefore he keeps us and promises never to turn away from us, Jeremiah 32, 40, Just as that commitment is as firm as his own name, so is also his commitment to purify us as his people. And so, to ask the question once again, if some are refined and some are consumed, how can we be sure the refining fire of purity and not the consuming fire of judgment will be ours? The answer is simple. We can be sure that we are the recipients of God's unchanging, purifying love by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. It really is that simple. The way that you have confidence that Christ will be to you a refiner's fire and not a consumer's fire or consuming fire is to trust in him alone for your salvation. And the reason is, is that when you have real saving faith that manifests itself in humbly receiving the grace of God and not rejecting it, it is a demonstration that God is at work in your life and he is committed to your purity. And so if if, if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are dependent upon him and his grace alone, you are taken, as it were, out of the category that that precipitates God's consuming fire of wrath, and you are brought safely into the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so you trust in him, you bank your hope on his covenantal love, you believe his promises of grace, you embrace his mercy, and you look away from your sin and yourself, and you are quick to confess, quick to repent, quick to acknowledge your need of the refiner's fire. And when that's the attitude of your heart, you can be confident that Christ is to me a refiner's fire and not a consuming fire. Did you, did you get that list? Trust in him. Bank your hope on his covenant love. Believe his promises of grace. Embrace his mercy. Look away from sin and self to him. Quick to, to confess our sins quick to repent of our sins and quick to acknowledge what I do need in my life is the refiner's fire. When that's the attitude of our hearts, we can have confidence that he's not drawing near for condemnation, but for purification. And so how do we trust in the purifying love of God? First, We need to live in the fear of the Lord and to tremble at his word. If you're to live a life where where you are actually trusting in the purifying love of God, because and and, and this this is the mindset. You say to yourself, because I know that God doesn't change and his love towards me doesn't change and he loved me in eternity past and he loves me now and he will love me forever. And because of that unchanging commitment of love that he has towards me, he is also committed to, to purifying me as a person of his own possession. He's committed to purifying us as a people of his own possession. And so as you start to think about that particular aspect of God's love to you, there's something in us that demands man's a response and it is not just to say i hope the fire doesn't get too hot the posture the attitude of the heart is to say first of all i need to live in the fear of the lord i i, I need to live consciously in the presence of a holy god who also wants me to be holy When you live with the concept of the fear of the Lord, there is something inside of you that says, not only is God holy, but he also wants me to be holy. He wants wants to be separating the, 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 the wheat and the chaff in my life. He wants to separate the dross from the gold and the dross from the silver. He wants to be, he wants to be uh, putting me in the refiner's fire to make me holy because he's holy. And if I live in the fear of him, then I'm going to want to be holy as he is holy. And how does he do that? He uses his word. And so that's why God says in Isaiah chapter 66, to this one I will look who is contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. And so we look at, we look at the word of the Lord as, as, as the crucible of the refiner's fire. We recognize that his refining work comes through conviction of sin and affliction. I am, I am absolutely positive that everything that God does in that crucible with the refiner's fire is is 
is not known to us exhaustively. I mean, there are things that he's doing that we that only eternity will tell. There are things that he's doing that we don't see. But the fact is, is that the, the picture is fire. And fire hurts. The image of refiner's fire is not so that we think that the process of purification will be a breeze but so that we realize that the process of refinement, the process of holiness, the process of purification actually is as disintegrating as taking a bar of gold or a bar of silver and, and, and putting it into whatever they put it in, the crucible or whatever, and, and, and having the heat go up and up and up to do what? To melt it down. To liquefy it. And it is only as the refiner's fire gets hotter and hotter that the dross, the impurities, the imperfections start to surface to the top. And it's only as they surface to the top that they're removed. The process itself is designed not to be pleasant. And so God uses things in our life that aren't pleasant. He uses affliction. He uses affliction to purify us. He uses affliction as the refiner's fire. And that's exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It is to pure, affliction comes to purify our faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love, I revel, I relish in times of blessing and prosperity and, and manifest kindness and tokens of goodness from God that are tangible. Those are the times that, that, that we love. Those are the times that we enjoy. But let's face it. The, the reality is, is that the biggest times of growth come for us not in the midst of blessing and prosperity and tokens of goodness. The times of growth come for us when we're getting melted down in the furnace of affliction. That is not only clear in Scripture, but that is the consistent testimony of God's people. If you were to look back at your Christian life and you were to identify the periods of growth that have been the most intense and the most honoring to God, you would not point back to times of abundance and prosperity and blessing. You'd point back to times of difficulty and affliction. And that's what God designs that for. But he also takes his word as that crucible to refine us through the conviction of sin. And that also is, is as if God is heating up the, the, the furnace. God is heating up the fire to do what? To start to separate. He's not going to go through microscopically or arthroscopically and try to dig out this little piece of impurity down here. He's going to heat it up so it gets to the top. David says, when I was silent about my sin, your hand was on me day and night. And my vitality was sapped away as with the fever heat of summer. That's the refiner's fire. The hand of God coming upon us. The, the hand of God, as it were, heating things up so that the impurities of our life float to the top. John Piper, 
in his little book, pierced by the word. 31 readings for meditation. They're brief. I would encourage you, use it to supplement your devotional time. He says, yes, the word pierces, and there's pain. But for those who trust in the living word, Jesus Christ, all the piercing will be pleasant in the end. The boil will be lanced, the cancer cut out, the poison removed. For those who trust the severe mercy of Jesus, all piercing is healing. So live in the fear of the Lord. Desire to be holy as he's holy. Tremble at his word, recognizing the the refining work is not pleasant, but it's hot. And then trust his refining work as a demonstration of his unchanging love. Let's face it, emotionally, that's the most difficult part of the process. Because the refiner's fire is not pleasant. Nobody that's getting melted down, nobody that's getting liquefied, says, this is like a sauna, this is great. Nobody says, oh, this is is like uh, one of those um, mineral baths. It's hot, and the tendency is to do what? To try to jump out. And, 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 and the reality is, is that emotionally, when you're in the midst of the refiner's fire, all kinds of things can go through your mind. And so how do we trust in the purifying love of God? We have to trust that his refining work is really a demonstration of his unchanging love to us. That's the hard part because things hurt. And when, and, and when things hurt, we want it to stop. And, 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 and yet God says, I know what I'm doing. Most of you know that Charles Spurgeon suffered miserably from gout. And Spurgeon in his own autobiography talks about his, as if his body was just being consumed by fire. And he'd lay on one side for a while until the pain was so intense. And then he'd roll to the other side until he could take it no more. And, and every nerve in his body was screaming out in pain. And at one point Spurgeon says, if if." My son were in this kind of pain. I would relieve it if I can. You can relieve it. Why don't you relieve my pain if you're my father? That's how we feel. That's how we feel. But God says, I know best. Whether it's conviction, whether it's affliction, whatever the refiner's fire may be, we have to trust it is a demonstration of his unchanging love to us. It's his demonstration he's committed to the process. And so don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. Don't blame the devil. Don't blame your kids. Don't blame your parents. Don't don't blame. Don't doubt it. Don't say defiantly, this can't be from God. It hurts. Be confident that the unchanging God is changing you because he loves you. Now, that message won't make it on TBN. All right? That message won't sell a million books. But it's the message of Holy Scripture. And it's the message of a God who loves us. And it's the message that helps to make sense when you're right in the middle of the refiner's fire. There's a song. I don't think we've ever sung this before, at least not to my recollection. 
but I listen to it frequently. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within, and make me holy, deep within. As a new year is upon us, let us be determined to be holy, set apart for him. And this is going to require us to take his word, to receive it, and to gladly receive his refining work in our lives as a gift of love. Some of you can look back at 2006, and you can say, this was one of the most difficult years of my whole life. I look back at 2006, and I can say without contradiction, It was the most difficult year of ministry ever since we've been here. Some of you can look back and there are events of 2006 that are painful events, difficult events, and and God put his finger on things in your life, brought things to the surface, and in the midst of affliction, in the midst of conviction, in the midst of all of it, you look back and you say, wow, I don't want that again. But that's how we grow. Now, I'm not praying for more affliction in 2007. (laughs) I'm not going to pray for more affliction in 2007. I'm not going to pray for difficulties in 2007. As you're going to hear in the AM, I'm trusting that God will open the windows of heaven and send down his rain upon us in 2007. But that's never apart from the refiner's fire. It's never apart from it. So as you face the new year, say, Lord... I know the refiner's fire is painful, but I receive it from you as a gift of unchanging, purifying love. I want to be holy. Let's pray. Father, we look to you right now And we acknowledge that you're good and you do good in all of your ways. And Father, we thank you that you're committed to our purification and our growth. And Father, we pray that even today, you'd give us the grace to look back on this year with gratitude, even for the refiner's fire. Father, we do want to be holy. Make us holy. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.